0: Introduction and preface of a simple story. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Ann. A simple story by Elizabeth Inchbald. Introduction by G. L. Stracke. A simple story is one of those books which, for some reason or other, have failed to come down to us as they deserved along the current of time, but have drifted into a literary backwater where only the professional critic or the curious discoverer can find them out. The iniquity of oblivion blindly scattereth her poppy, and nowhere more blindly than in the Republic of Letters. If we were to inquire how it has happened that the true value of Mrs. Inchbald's achievement has passed out of general recognition, Perhaps the answer to our question would be found to lie in the extreme difficulty with which the mass of readers detect and appreciate mere quality in literature. Their judgment is swayed by a hundred side considerations which have nothing to do with art, but happen easily to impress the imagination, or to fit in with the fashion of the hour. The reputation of Mrs. Inchbald's contemporary, Fanny Burney, is a case in point. Every one has heard of Fanny Burney's novels, and Evelina is still widely read. Yet it is impossible to doubt that, so far as quality alone is concerned, Evelina deserves to be ranked considerably below a simple story. But its writer was the familiar friend of the greatest spirits of her age. She was the author of one of the best diaries, and her work was immediately and immensely popular. Thus it has happened that the name of Fanny Burney has maintained its place upon the roll of English novelists while that of Mrs. Inchbald is forgotten. But the obscurity of Mrs. Inchbald's career has not, of course, been the only reason for the neglect of her work. The merits of a simple story are of a kind peculiarly calculated to escape the notice of a generation of readers brought up on the fiction of the nineteenth century. That fiction, infinitely various as it is, possesses at least one characteristic common to the whole of it, a breath of outlook upon life, which can be paralleled by no other body of literature in the world, save that of the Elizabethans. But the comprehensiveness of view, shared by Dickens and Tolstoy, by Balzac and George Eliot, finds no place in Mrs. Inchbald's work. Compared with A Simple Story, even the narrow canvases of Jane Austen seem spacious pictures of diversified life. Mrs. Inchbald's novel is not concerned with the world at large, or with any section of society, hardly even with the family. Its subject is a group of two or three individuals whose interaction forms the whole business of the book. There is no local color in it, no complexity of detail nor violence of contrast. The atmosphere is vague and neutral, the action passes among ill-defined sitting-rooms, and the most poignant scene in the story takes place upon a staircase which has never been described. Thus the reader of modern novels is inevitably struck, in a simple story, by a sense of emptiness and thinness, which may well blind him to high intrinsic merits. The spirit of the eighteenth century is certainly present in the book, but it is the eighteenth century of France, rather than of England. Mrs. Inchbald no doubt owed much to Richardson. Her view of life is the indoor sentimental view of the great author of Clarissa, but her treatment of it has very little in common with his method of microscopic analysis and vast accumulation. If she belongs to any school, it is among the followers of the French classical tradition that she must be placed. A simple story is, in its small way, a descendant of the tragedies of racine, and Miss Milner may claim relationship with Madame de Cleve. Besides her narrowness of vision, Mrs. Inchbald possesses another quality, no less characteristic of her French predecessors, and no less rare among the novelists of England. She is essentially a stylist, a writer whose whole conception of her art is dominated by stylistic intention. Her style, it is true, is on the whole poor. It is often heavy and pompous, sometimes clumsy and indistinct. Compared with the style of such a master as Thackeray, it sinks at once into insignificance. But the interest of her style does not lie in its intrinsic merit so much as in the use to which she puts it. Thackeray's style is mere ornament, existing independently of what he has to say. Mrs. Inchbald's is part and parcel of her matter. The result is that when, in moments of inspiration, she rises to the height of her opportunity, when, mastering her material, she invests her expression with the whole intensity of her feelings and her thought— Then she achieves effects of the rarest beauty, effects of a kind for which one may search through Thackeray in vain. The most triumphant of these passages is the scene on the staircase of Elmwood House, a passage which would be spoiled by quotation, and which no one who has ever read it could forget. But the same quality is to be found throughout her work. "'Oh, Miss Whitley!' exclaims Miss Milner, forced at last to confession to her friend what she feels toward Dorforth. I love him with all the passion of a mistress, and with all the tenderness of a wife. No young lady, even in the eighteenth century, ever gave utterance to such a sentence as that. It is the sentence, not of a speaker, but of a writer, and yet, for that very reason, it is delightful, and it comes to us charged with a curious sense of emotion, which is none the less real for its elaboration. In Nature and Art, Mrs. Inchbald's second novel, the climax of the story is told in a series of short paragraphs, which, for bitterness and concentration of style, are almost reminiscent of Stendhal. The jury consulted for a few minutes. The verdict was guilty. She heard it with composure. But when William placed the fatal velvet on his head and rose to pronounce sentence, she started with a kind of convulsive motion, retreated a step or two back, and, lifting up her hands with a scream, exclaimed, "'Oh, not from you!' The piercing shriek which accompanied these words prevented their being heard by part of the audience, and those who heard them thought little of their meaning, more than that they expressed her fear of dying. Serene and dignified, as if no such exclamation had been uttered, William delivered the fatal speech, ending with, "'Dead! Dead! Dead!' She fainted as he closed the period, and was carried back to prison in a swoon, while he adjourned the court to go to dinner. Here, no doubt, there is a touch of melodrama, but it is the melodrama of a rhetorician, and, in that fine, she heard it with composure, genius has brushed aside the forced and the obvious to express, with supreme directness, the anguish of a soul. For, in spite of Miss Inchbald's artificialities, In spite of her lack of that kind of realistic description which seems to modern readers the very blood and breath of a good story, she has the power of doing what, after all, only a very few, indeed, of her fellow craftsmen have ever been able to do. She can bring into her pages the living pressure of a human passion. She can invest, if not with realism, with something greater than realism, with a sense of reality itself." the pains, the triumphs, and the agitations of the human heart. The heart, to use the old-fashioned phrase, there is Miss Inchbald's empire, there is the sphere of her glory and her command. Outside of it, her powers are weak and fluctuating. She has no firm grasp of the masculine elements in character. She wishes to draw a rough man, Sandford, and she draws a rude one. She tries her hand at a hero, Rushbrook, and she turns out a prig her humor is not faulty but it is exceedingly slight what an immortal figure the dim mrs horton would have become in the hands of jane austen in nature and art her attempts at social satire are superficial and overstrained but weaknesses of this kind and it would be easy to prolong the list are what every reader of the following pages will notice without difficulty and what no wise one will regard il ne faut pas juger des hommes parce qu'ils May pas Save And Mrs. Inchbald's knowledge was as profound as it was limited. Her Miss Milner is an original and brilliant creation, compact of charm and life. She is a flirt, and a flirt not only adorable, but worthy of adoration. Did Mrs. Inchbald take the suggestion of a heroine with imperfections from the little masterpiece which, on more sides than one, closely touches hers? Lescaut? Perhaps, and yet, if this was so, The borrowing was of the slightest, for it is only in the fact that she is imperfect that Miss Milner bears to Manon any resemblance at all. In every other respect the English heroine is the precise contrary of the French one. She is a creature of fiery will, of high bearing, of noble disposition, and her shortcomings are born not of weakness but of excess of strength. Mrs. Inchbald has taken this character— she has thrown it under the influence of a violent and absorbing passion, and, upon that theme, she has written her delicate, sympathetic, and artificial book. As one reads it, one cannot but feel that it is, if not directly and circumstantially, at least in essence, autobiographical. One finds oneself speculating over the author, wondering what was her history and how much of it was Miss Milner's. Unfortunately, the greater part of what we should most like to know of Miss Inchbald's life has vanished beyond recovery. She wrote her memoirs, and she burnt them. And who can tell whether even there we should have found a self-revelation? Confessions are sometimes curiously discreet, and, in the case of Mrs. Inchbald, we may be sure that it is only what was indiscreet that would really be worth the hearing. Yet her life is not devoid of interest. A brief sketch of it may be welcome to her readers.' Elizabeth Inchbald was born on the fifteenth of october seventeen fifty three at Standingfield near Bury, St. Edmund's in Suffolk. Footnote One The following account is based upon the memoirs of Mrs. Inchbald, including her familiar correspondence with the most distinguished persons of her time, edited by James Broden, Esq, A discursive, vague, and not an amusing book, and a footnote one of the numerous offspring of John and Mary Simpson. The Simpsons, who were Roman Catholics, held a moderate farm in Standingfield and ranked among the gentry of the neighbourhood. In Elizabeth's eighth year her father died, but the family continued at the farm, the elder daughters marrying and settling in London, while Elizabeth grew up into a beautiful and charming girl. One misfortune, however, interfered with her happiness, a defect of utterance which during her early years rendered her speech so indistinct as to be unintelligible to strangers she devoted herself to reading and to dreams of the great world. At thirteen she declared she would rather die than live longer without seeing the world. She longed to go to London. She longed to go upon the stage. When, in 1770, one of her brothers became an actor at Norwich, she wrote secretly to his manager, Mr. Griffith, begging for an engagement. Mr. Griffith was encouraging, and, though no definite steps were taken, She was sufficiently charmed with him to write out his name at length in her diary, with the inscription, "'Each dear letter of thy name is Harmony.'" Was Mr. Griffith the hero of the company, as well as its manager? That, at any rate, was clearly Miss Simpson's opinion. But she soon had other distractions. In the following year she paid a visit to her married sisters in London, where she met another actor, Mr. Inchbald, who seems immediately to have fallen in love with her, and to have proposed. She remained cool. In spite of your eloquent pen, she wrote to him, with a touch of that sharp and almost bitter sense that was always hers, matrimony still appears to me with less charms than terrors. The bliss arising from it, I doubt not, is superior to any other, but best not to be ventured for, in my opinion, till some little time has proved the emptiness of all other, which it seldom fails to do. Nevertheless, the correspondence continued, and, early in 1772, some entries in her diary give a glimpse of her state of mind. January 22. Saw Mr. Griffith's picture. January twenty-eighth, Stole it. January 29. Rather disappointed at not receiving a letter from Mr. Inchbald. A few months later she did the great deed of her life. She stepped secretly into the Norwich coach and went to London. The days that followed were full of hazard and adventure, but the details of them are uncertain. She was a girl of eighteen, absolutely alone, and astonishingly attractive. Tall, we are told, slender, straight, of the purest complexion and most beautiful features, her hair of a golden auburn, her eyes full at once of spirit and sweetness. And it was only to be expected that, in such circumstances, romance and daring would soon give place to discomfort and alarm. She attempted in vain to obtain a theatrical engagement. She found herself more than once obliged to shift her lodgings, and at last, after ten days of trepidation, she was reduced to apply for the help of her married sisters. This put an end to her difficulties, but, in spite of her efforts to avoid notice, her beauty had already attracted attention, and she had received a letter from a stranger, with whom she immediately entered into correspondence. She had all the boldness of innocence, and, in addition, a force of character which brought her safely through the risks she ran. While she was still in her solitary lodging, a theatrical manager, named Dodd, attempted to use his position as a cover for seduction. She had several interviews with him alone, and the story goes that, in the last, she snatched up a basin of hot water and dashed it in his face. But she was not to go unprotected for long, for within two months of her arrival in London she had married Mr. Inchbald. The next twelve years of Mrs. Inchbald's life were passed amid the rough and tumble of the eighteenth-century stage. Her husband was thirty-seven when she married him, a Roman Catholic like herself, and an actor who depended for his living upon ill-paid and uncertain provincial engagements. Mrs. Inchbald conquered her infirmity of speech and threw herself into her husband's profession. She accompanied him to Bristol, to Scotland, to Liverpool, to Birmingham, appearing in a great variety of roles, but never with any very conspicuous success. The record of these journeys throws an interesting light upon the conditions of the provincial companies of those days. Mrs. Inchbald and her companions would set out to walk from one Scotch-town to another. They would think themselves lucky if they could climb on to a passing cart, to arrive at last, drenched with rain perhaps, at some wretched hostelry. But this kind of barbarism did not stand in the way of an almost childish gaiety. In Yorkshire we find the Inchbalds, the Siddonses, and Kemble, retiring to the moors, in the intervals of business, to play blind men's bluff or Puss-in-the-corner such were the pastimes of mrs siddons before the days of her fame no doubt this kind of light-heartedness was the best anecdote to the experience of being saluted with volleys of potatoes and broken bottles as the siddonses were by the citizens of liverpool for having ventured to appear on their stage without having ever played before the king on this occasion the audience according to a letter from kimball to mrs inchbald extinguished all the lights round the house then jumped upon the stage brushed every lamp out with their hats took back their money left the theatre and determined themselves to repeat this till they have another company these adventures were diversified by a journey to paris undertaken in the hope that mr inchbald who found himself without engagements might pick up a livelihood as a painter of miniatures the scheme came to nothing and the inchbalds eventually went to hall where they returned to their old profession here in seventeen seventy nine Suddenly and somewhat mysteriously, Mr. Inchbald died. To his widow the week that followed was one of grief, horror, and almost despair. But soon, with her old pertinacity, she was back at her work, settling at last in London, and becoming a member of the Covent Garden Company. Here for the next five years she earned herself a meager living, until, quite unexpectedly, deliverance came. In her moments of leisure she had been trying her hand upon a dramatic composition. She had written some farces, and, in 1784, one of them, A Mogul Tale, was accepted, acted, and obtained a great success. This was the turning point of her career. She followed up her farce with a series of plays, either original or adapted, which almost without exception were well received, so that she was soon able to retire from the stage with a comfortable competence. She had succeeded in life. She was happy, respected, free. Mrs. Inchbald's plays are so bad that it is difficult to believe that they brought her a fortune. But no doubt it was their faults that made them popular, their sentimentalities, their melodramatic absurdities, their strangely false and high-pitched moral tone. They are written in a jargon which resembles, if it resembles anything, an inexorable prose translation from the very flat French verse. "'Ah, Manuel!' exclaims one of her heroines. I am now amply punished by the Marquis for all my cruelty to Duke Corduna, he to whom my father in my infancy betrothed me, and to whom I willingly pledged my faith, hoping to wed, till Romano, the Marquis of Romano, came from the field of glory, and with superior claims of person as of fame, seized on my heart by force, and perforce made me feel I had never loved till then. Which is more surprising, that actors could be found to utter such speeches? or that audiences could be collected to applaud them. Perhaps, for us, the most memorable fact about Mrs. Inchbald's dramatic work is that of her adaptations from the German of Kotzebue, was no other than The Lover's Vows, which, as every one knows, was rehearsed so brilliantly at Ecclesford, the seat of the Right Honourable Lord Ravenshaw in Cromwell, and which, after all, was not performed at Sir Thomas Bertram's. But this is an interest, sub and, from the temporal point of view, Mrs. Inchbald's plays must be regarded merely as means, means toward her own enfranchisement, and that condition of things which made possible a simple story. That novel had been sketched as early as 1777, but it was not completely written until 1790, and not published until the following year. A second edition was printed immediately, and several more followed. The present reprint is from the fourth, published in 1799, but with the addition of the characteristic preface which, after the second edition, was dropped. The four small volumes of these early editions, with their large type, their ample spacing, their charming flavor of antiquity, delicacy, and rest, may be met with often enough in secluded corners of second-hand bookshops or on some neglected shelf in the library of a country-house. For their own generation they represented a distinguished title to fame. Mrs. Inchbald, to use the expression of her biographer, was ascertained to be one of the greatest ornaments of her sex. She was painted by Lawrence, she was eulogized by Miss Edgeworth, she was complimented by Madame Stael herself. She had, indeed, won for herself a position which can hardly be paralleled among the women of the eighteenth century. A position of independence and honor, based upon talent, and upon talent alone. In 1796 she published Nature and Art, and ten years later appeared her last work, a series of biographical and critical notices prefixed to a large collection of acting plays. During the greater part of the intervening period she lived in lodgings in Leicester Square, or Leicester Fields, as the place is still often called, in a house opposite that of Sir Joshua Reynolds. The economy which she had learned in her early days she continued to practice, dressing with extraordinary plainness, and often going without a fire in winter, so that she was able, through her self-sacrifice, to keep from want a large band of poor relatives and friends. The society she mixed with was various, but, for the most part, obscure. There were occasional visits from the now triumphant Mrs. Siddons. There were incessant propositions, but, alas, they were equivocal, from Sir Charles Bunbury. For the rest, she passed her life among actor-managers and humble playwrights, and unremembered medical men. One of her friends was William Godwin, who described her to Mrs. Shelley as a piquant mixture between a lady and a milkmaid, and who, it is said, suggested part of the plot of a simple story. But she quarrelled with him when he married Mary Wollstonecraft, after whose death she wrote to him thus, With the most sincere sympathy in all you have suffered, with the most perfect forgiveness of all you have said to me, there must nevertheless be an end to our acquaintance for ever. I respect your prejudices, but I also respect my own." Far more intimate were her relations with Dr. Gisborne, a mysterious figure with whom, in some tragic manner that we can only just discern, was enacted her final romance. His name, often in company with that of another physician, Dr. Warren, for whom, too, she had a passionate affection, occurs frequently among her papers, and her diary for December 17, 1794, has this entry. Dr. Gisborne drank tea here, and stayed very late. He talked seriously of marrying, but not me. Many years later, one September, she amused herself by making out a list of all the Septembers since her marriage, with brief notes as to her state of mind during each. The list has fortunately survived, and some of the latter entries are as follows. 1791. London. After my novel, Simple Story. Very happy. 1792. London. In Leicester Square. Cheerful, content, and sometimes rather happy. 1794 extremely happy, but for poor Debbie's death. 1795, my brother George's death, and an intimate acquaintance with Dr. Gisborne, not happy. 1797, after an alteration in my teeth, and the death of Dr. Warren, yet far from unhappy. 1798, happy, but for suspicion amounting almost to certainty of rapid appearance of age in my face. 1802, after feeling wholly indifferent about Dr. Gisborne, very happy but for ill health, ill looks, etc. 1803. After quitting Leicester Square, probably for ever, after caring scarce at all or thinking of Dr. Gisborne, very happy. 1806. After the death of Dr. Gisborne, too, often very unhappy, yet mostly cheerful, and on my return to London, nearly happy. The record, with all its quaintness, produces a curious impression of Stoicism, of a certain grim acceptance of the facts of life. It would have been a pleasure, certainly, but an alarming pleasure, to have known Mrs. Inchbald. In the early years of the century she gradually withdrew from London, establishing herself in suburban boarding-houses, often among sisters of charity, and devoting her days to the practice of her religion. In her early and middle life she had been an indifferent Catholic. Sunday, rose late, dressed, and read the Bible about David, etc. This is one of the very few references in her diary to anything approaching a religious observance during many years. But, in her old age, her views changed. Her devotions increased with her retirement, and her retirement was at last complete. She died in an obscure Kensington boarding-house on August 1st, 1821. She was buried in Kensington Churchyard, but if her ghost lingers anywhere, it is not in Kensington, it is in the heart of London that she had always loved. Yet, even there, how much now would she find to recognize? Mrs. Inchbald's world has passed away from us for ever, and, as we walk there to-day amid the press of the living, it is hard to believe that she too was familiar with Leicester Square. G. L. Strachey A Simple Story in Four Volumes by Mrs. Inchbald. Volume 1. The Fourth Edition. PREFACE. It is said, a book should be read with the same spirit with which it has been written. In that case, fatal must be the reception of this, for the writer frankly avows that during the time she has been writing it she has suffered every quality and degree of weariness and lassitude into which no other employment could have betrayed her. It has been the destiny of the writer of this story to be occupied throughout her life in what has the least suited either her inclination or capacity with an invincible impediment in her speech, it was her lot for thirteen years to gain a subsistence by public speaking, and, with the utmost detestation of the fatigue of inventing, a constitution suffering under a sedentary life, and an education confined to the narrow boundaries prescribed her sex, it has been her fate to devote a tedious seven years to the unremitting labor of literary productions, whilst the taste for authors of the first rank has been an additional punishment." forbidding her one moment of those self-approving reflections, which are assuredly due to the industrious. But, alas, in the exercise of the arts, industry scarce bears the name of merit. What, then, is to be substituted in the place of genius? Good fortune. And if these volumes should be attended by the good fortune that has accompanied her other writings, to that divinity, and that alone, she shall attribute their success. Yet there is a first cause, still, to whom I cannot here forbear to mention my obligations. The muses, I trust, will pardon me, that to them I do not feel myself obliged, for, in justice to their heavenly inspirations, I believe they have never yet favoured me with one visitation, but sent in their disguise necessity, who, being the mother of invention, gave me all mine, while fortune kindly smiled and was accessory to the cheat. But this important secret I long wished and endeavoured to conceal, yet one unlucky moment candidly, though unwittingly, divulged it, I frankly own. That fortune having chased away necessity, there remained no other incitement to stimulate me to a labor I abhorred. It happened to be in the power of the person to whom I confided this secret, to send necessity once more. Once more, then, bowing to its empire, I submit to the task it enjoins. This case has something similar to a theatrical anecdote, told, I think, by caller sipper a performer of a very mean salary played the apothecary in romeo and juliet so exactly to the satisfaction of the audience that this little part independent of the other characters drew immense houses whenever the play was performed the manager in consequence thought it but justice to advance the actor's salary on which the poor man who like the character he represented had been half starved before began to live so comfortably he became too plump for the part And being of no importance in anything else, the manager, of course, now wholly discharged him, and thus, actually reducing him to the want of a piece of bread, in a short time he became a proper figure for the part again. Welcome, then, thou all-powerful principle, necessity, thou, who art the instigator of so many bad authors and actors, thou, who from my infancy seldom hast forsaken me, still abide with me, I will not complain of any hardship thy commands require so thou dost not urge my pen to prostitution. In all thy rigour, O, do not force my toil to libels, or what is equally pernicious, panegyric on the unworthy. End of Preface